Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. I'm Dan Putt, one of the partners here at Reboot. I could not be more excited about this show. I've known Jerry for almost seven years now, and without a doubt, I can say that my work with him has had a profound impact on my life. In this show, we're opening up the coaching couch to the world and bringing everyone in on this conversation around this work. We're here to showcase the heart and soul of authentic leadership and to inspire more open conversations around what we consider the most important part of entrepreneurship, the emotional struggle, and hopefully opening up some hearts along the way. We are extremely grateful that you've taken the time to be with us and look forward to this journey ahead with you. Now, on to our conversation. The human self has a nature, limits as well as potential. If you seek vocation without understanding the material you are working with, what you build with your life will be ungainly and may well put lives in peril your own, and some of those around you. Faking it in the service of high values is no virtue and has nothing to do with vocation. It is an ignorant, sometimes arrogant, attempt to override one's nature, and it will always fail. Those words come from Parker Palmer in his book, Let Your Life Speak, which really is a reboot favorite. Duncan Morris, by any measure, had achieved a great deal of success as co-founder and CEO of the international 60-plus employee online marketing agency, Distilled. And yet something felt off for him. At our boot camp in June, he was touched and challenged by a question from Jerry. What if you could truly understand who you are and lead from that place? In evaluating this question, a new question emerged for Duncan. What if I don't want to be a leader of a company with 60 plus people? In this conversation with Jerry, hear how exploring these questions has ultimately changed his work, his company, and his life. Now, on to our conversation. Hey, Duncan, how are you? I'm good, Jerry. You? I'm very, very well. I'm just back from sabbatical and, and I've had a good summer. And as you know, we sort of relaunched my coaching business is Reboot, and it's really quite exciting. So um, before we jump in, why don't you give us a little bit about what Distilled is and what your role has been and what you want to talk through today? So uh, me and my co-founder, who happens to be my best friend of about 20 years now, Will Critchlow, set up Distilled about 10 years ago, just under 10 years ago. We started off doing um, web development, building small websites for kind of tiny clients. Um, our, our first ever sale was the hairdresser at the end of the road. And that's grown from there. People wanted to know how to appear on the search engines, Google particularly. We grew into kind of an SEO business. And then the last few years of being that, the, in, the SEO industry is in a funny um, transition period. And we're kind of riding that. So these days we call ourselves more of an online marketing company, um, helping companies of all size get found in Google, produce creative they're proud of, that help them attract customers, um, a whole range of things, but uh, broadly in the marketing category. Okay. And and uh, 10 years doing this. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, it's been fun. Um, 10 years ago, I couldn't have dreamed we'd be here. Um, 
so yeah it's only when you look back and think that these things get put into perspective sometimes so you kind of you can ignore all of the troubles we've had and just go well 10 years ago i'd have absolutely taken a position we're in now um makes all, everything worthwhile and how many employees do you have now uh just over 60. wow it's a big company it is it's um made more complicated or at least management's made more complicated by the fact we're in uh, two countries so we're in the uk and america and multiple time zones. So we're in London and Seattle are the two extremes. So there's only an hour of overlap, which makes it hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think everyone underestimates the, the complexity of managing multiple locations. Even though things like Google Hangouts and Skype make it easier to connect, it's still, you've got the time zone problem and you've got the multiple office problem, which is always an issue, so. Absolutely, and I think you, you lose the I think they call it water cooler chat. You lose that the ability to get to know people on a personal level, which I think makes a big difference when you have to work with them. Um, you find yourself, it's much easier to work with people when you know, you can look them in the eye or you've seen that they're in a bad mood that morning um, and you, you know that, whereas someone in, the, um, in another office, it's much harder to get that kind of context around why they're saying what they're saying or all of that sort of stuff. So it does make it hard. Yeah. Let, let, let's jump in. What... What is it you wanted to talk through today? So um, I've actually, um, after going on the boot camp that you ran, went through a whole bunch of thinking and with um, lots of chats with Will, uh, have actually stepped down as CEO. So I've been CEO of Distilled for the last five years and have stepped down and taken up a kind of a, a two-pronged role, I guess, a chairman role um, and also a Back to my roots, I'm coding. So in our R&D team, just writing some code, um, Will's taken over as CEO. So there's been a bit of a transition there. Um, and yeah, it'd be great to talk about kind of that transition, the decision-making, um, like the future. Mm. Wow, it's a, that, 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 that's, that's a big shift. You said you made this decision after you attended the boot camp, you know, and we, we did the boot camp in June in Tuscany. What was it? What happened? Um, well, so the week after boot camp, I went on holiday with my wife and my son. Um, we spent, I can't remember where we were, camping, I think, and just spent a bunch of time. I was on my own, I guess, for some of it. So I had time to think. We went on walks, that sort of thing. And one thing that you said on one of the days at boot camp had just stuck out in my mind. We're talking about um, diving into the wreck, kind of radical self-inquiry, working out who you are. I think the, the phrase you said was something like, what happens if you could really understand who you were and lead from that place? And the more I thought about it, the more I worked out that who I was didn't really want to be a leader, um, certainly not of 60 people with all the challenges we talked about, like the, the multiple offices, the time zones. That was something that it was just really, really draining for me. I've phrased it since as spending five years trying to be someone I'm not, and that's just tiring. Um, so it was that realization that I didn't really want to join it and I would be much happier. Um, I'd be much more fulfilled doing something else. Wow. You know, just hearing you say that, I mean, it, it moves me profoundly. Um, you know, you, re you referenced 
diving into the wreck, and that's the Adrian Rich poem in which she sort of she likens the exploration of an undersea wreck with really an excavation of who we really are. And one of my favorite lines from that poem is the wreck itself, not the story of the wreck, right? Not the stories that we tell ourselves about our lives and the, the things that create us, but, this, but, but our life itself. And it sounds like you went on a, on a fairly profound existential journey to kind of discover who you really are. I think so. Yes. I'm, I'm not sure I understand who I am yet, but, um, yes, it was, it was definitely a journey and it's hard to know. Like I've been speaking to people and they've been saying, well, who knows what we'll be like in two years. Do you think you'll regret it? And I've no idea how to answer that, but all I know now is I feel amazing. I, I wake up every morning refreshed and energized. And I think more importantly, I go to bed at night feeling exactly the same. We, me and my wife, we recently, we just started watching The West Wing again. And there's an episode at the end of series one. I think it's called Let Bartlett Be Bartlett or something like that. And he goes, he's talking about um, of all the staff are teasing him because he woke up really energized. And towards the end of the episode, he says something like, I really did wake up energized this morning. Um, and then he's like, but I never seemed to go to sleep energized. And it was exactly the same for me. There were days when I woke up and I was ready to conquer the world. But when I put my head on the pillow, shut my eyes. It was always kind of a relief. The day was over, it's a relief. And then maybe I'd wake up energizing the next day. Um, maybe I wouldn't. But these days, the last few weeks, I've been going to sleep, raring to get up the next day, kind of full of ideas of what I want to do. I've worked later than I used to. Um, I get kind of lost in code, lost in what I'm kind of, what I'm doing, lost in the excitement. And yeah, it's been life-changing um, and long may it continue, I guess. Wow. You know, uh, there, there are instances when working with a client or working with someone else just sort of blows me away because there's a truth, there's a profound truth in what they're saying. And I feel that, you know, I'm connecting back to two things. One is the name of that episode was Let Bartlett Be Bartlett. And your statement that for five years you weren't really being your authentic self. And, you know, last night I did another talk and as usual, you know, I sort of opened up and sort of midway through it just sort of revealed some stuff about my own life and where, where I am. And I explained to the group that what I came to understand is that if I, if I live from an inauthentic place, there's a direct correlation between that and depression and stress. That if I spend my days and my the hours of my days um, pretending to be someone I'm not, no matter how skilled I am at it, th there's a cost. And I think you're going to bed at night exhausted and waking up exhausted, or conversely, going to bed energized and waking up energized, is a reflection that for whatever length of time we're talking about, right now in this moment, this is what you needed to, to really be yourself. Absolutely. Um, 
kind of like cropped into my head. Um, one of the other things we talked a lot about at, at boot camp was being present. And I think that, that energy, that energized has translated into my personal life as well. Um, so I've got a four-year-old son who starts school in a week, actually. And uh, two weeks after I went to boot camp, something that I, I'm sure is going to turn out to be an absolute nightmare, but something that at the moment, at the time, was absolutely magical happened, which was Edward, for the first time in probably ever, walked round the bed. So my wife sleeps closest to the door of our bedroom. Edward walked round the bed and woke me up rather than waking my wife up because for the last few weeks, I'd been really, really present with him. I'd been playing. I wasn't in the same room as him playing, but checking my email and checking my phone. I put my phone in another room or turned it off. I was crawling around the floor playing Lego. He loves playing Lego farms and zoos and all sorts of things. And yeah, he, he woke me up and I just remember thinking um, that was the most magical thing ever because he'd chosen for me to go down with him that morning and so that I could play with him. And that's continued like 80% of the time he wants me to read him stories at night. Um, he spends a lot of the time with Susie, my wife, and he always used to want her to read stories and you can understand, but yeah, it's just such a, it's such a joy. It brings a smile to my face that he chooses me, I guess. And again, that's, that's all down to the stuff that we talked about at boot camp, being present, um, and is probably one of the biggest life changing things that has happened. Like the CEO switch is being is probably what's caused a lot of the energy change and has caused what has caused the energy level to be better. But the thing that I'm going to remember, the thing that in five years time is going to have made a massive difference is playing with Edward, playing with my son. You're going to make me cry. <laughs> That'll serve us right. You've, you made me cry plenty of times at boot camp. So. <laughs> you know, it, um, the image of Edward coming to you and waking you up and wanting to be with you. And, and, you know, what I'm not hearing is him choosing one parent over the other, but him choosing both of his parents, you know, expressing a desire for his dad and not just his mom or his daddy, because at four, that's what you are. Right. And, and he, uh, I'm just remembering some of the things you've shared about your own journey, your physical challenges as a result of some of the stress and tension and your own relationship with your dad. And, you know, what I'm seeing is a man choosing to be a man in the way that's best for him. Does that resonate? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny you mentioned my dad because... One of the things, um, one of the things that gave me a massive amount of validation when I was um, kind of deciding whether staying as CEO was an option, um, I rang up my dad and we we talk. I mean, I see him regularly. It's not like we're um, not like we don't talk. We're close. We just don't talk, if that makes sense. Um, and I rang him up and said, "Look, I'm I'm not sure CEO is right for me. It's it's hard for all of these reasons. What do you think?" And he just said, well, you probably didn't know this about me because I've probably not told you, but that happened to me. I was, I can't remember what it was, CTO at a certain company um, and just walked into HR one day and said, look, this isn't for me. Um, you're finding me a new role or I'm leaving. 
Um, and he said it was the best thing that ever happened to him. And suddenly I got that extra validation and I, I got a bit closer to my dad as well. Like we, we had a conversation about something that probably happened when I was 10 or 15, I'm guessing. Um, but he just didn't really talk about it at the time. And yeah, that was massive validation for me. Um, it was something like, ah, yeah, that makes sense. And he just, he echoed what a lot of people have said, which is one of the benefits of running your own company is that you can choose what you want to do in that. Um, and if you're not happy, then that's crazy. It's crazy that you've designed a company, designed a role for yourself within your own company where you're not happy. Um, and yeah, I mean, we probably only spoke for 10 minutes, but it it was probably the most we'd, the most we'd spoken or the mo- of, we'd spoken of the most substance for a long time. And it was a big validation for wanting to make some changes. And yeah, I'm not sure what would have happened if you just said, no, stick it out. You'll be fine. Tough it through. Yeah. What a gift you gave each other. Yeah, absolutely. You know, to connect and, and I'm recalling times in which I would I remember when my father lost his job. I told you that story. And, you know, I was 10 at the time. And it so profoundly affected me. But it was really only recently that I began looking at that experience, not through the lens of a 10-year-old boy, but through the lens of a 40, 50-year-old man, thinking about what it would be like if I were in his shoes. And one of the things that I think you and your dad did was empathetically reach across the generations in the time and really share the experience of being a man and having to face these sort of choices. And what was it like to learn that that had happened to him? Beyond the validation for you. Yeah. I guess it made it seem normal somehow. Um, I think it, it also, it was a bit of a shock. Um, like my dad is actually in a, does a very, very similar role to me. He's very, very technical. He programs, he's all of that. Everything that kind of, um, is me is he's very similar. Um, we share a lot of traits like I don't like the label introvert, but we are both very um, private. He he comes around to my house and sits in the corner, and it's rare that he has a conversation in some senses. But um, sorry, I've lost track of where I was going. I was asking you about how, uh, what was it like hearing that that experience was similar, and you had said it was kind of, I mean, the word that popped in my head was it kind of normalized it. That is, you know, you could relate to what, what he had gone through. Yeah. It, and it was probably one of the few times that I could actually relate, even though the roles we have are on the surface look very similar. Um, it was the first time that I actually, it's the first time I remember um, kind of understanding that he'd gone through similar things. Like his work for him was always this big um it was always a big part of his life. And I think looking back, he did that absolutely for the family. Like he had a, a important job. He was, he spent a week out of every month in America 
So he wasn't always there. So work was a massive thing because for a week out of every month when I was growing up, my dad wasn't there. Um, but it kind of puts it into, yeah, it, it did. It just made it normal. It made it feel like we, we'd gone through something similar. Um, like my travel was nowhere near. I, I go to the States three, four times a year. Um, I, I cry relatively infrequently, which will be a surprise to you given boot camp. But, um, but the one time that I always feel closest to tears is when I shut the door and walk out the house to go to the airport and leave Susie and Edward on the doorstep kind of waving and blowing kisses and generally embarrassing me on the street. Um, it's the one time that I've got tears in the corner of my eye because it is just hard. And kind of you reflect back and actually realize that my dad had to do that once every month. And it must have been really hard for him. And I never really saw it from his position, I guess. Looking back, I just always remember the times, not the times he wasn't there, but that there were times he wasn't there. When you were a kid, how did you feel about those times that he wasn't there? It's not something, to be honest, it's not something that I have a strong memory of. I have memories from, so my uh, mum my always tells the story when I was at um, early school, so I was probably five or six, we had to write a diary every morning. We had to spend 10 minutes writing a diary. And um, it's, I think this diary must have got sent home somehow. And I wrote in the diary, uh, my dad came back today. And the teacher just put at the top, thank God for that. Um, and it's always been that kind of, that joke is like, clearly I was different. Clearly I was grumpy or troublemaker when he wasn't there. Um, I think my dad had been away for an extended period of time that time. But it's not something that stands out from my childhood, but um, there are cl it clearly affected me. There are stories about what I was like um, when my dad wasn't there. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I wouldn't, until now, I've never really thought of it as a big part or a big influence in my life, but I guess it is. Like It was probably a long period of my life, and it probably did influence me in ways I don't really understand. You know, one of the things I've, I've come to understand about my own journey in becoming a parent, one of the things that I had to uh, really grapple with was the way in which my over-identification with my children would uh, affect me. So when I was of a younger venture capitalist, a young venture capitalist, and I would travel often. I would often have that tearful goodbye, which I would hold on to and not actually share. Uh, telling myself that I did not want to upset my kids. And in those moments, I think what was happening to me was that I was both the parent and the child in the same moment. That is, I was reliving the feeling of watching, say, my mother or my father leave at the same time as I was the parent who was leaving. I was both the abandoned and the abandoner. And it was confusing. Um, I think what happens to us is we get into a, you know, that early parenthood age where we're not quite no longer a child, and we're not quite fully a parent. 
but we're in this sort of in-between state. We have the capacity to empathetically feel what our kids are feeling and to begin to feel what our parents felt. And I think it's in that empathy that we have the opportunity to begin to heal. I know, again, for myself, that once I began to internalize what was it like for my father to have lost his job and in my instance for me to see him cry for the first time in my life i no longer saw it only as a 10 year old boy frightened that his father was crying but i saw it as a man who was frightened about caring for his family and being the breadwinner and it shifted the experience. It shifted the memory, and it made me feel closer to him. Unfortunately, he had died by the time I had reached that conclusion. He died when I was 30. And I never really got a chance to tell him that I understood. So I'm going to be a little paternalistic with you, my friend. You can just say to your dad, at the risk of making him feel all uncomfortable because he's British, that you understand that what he went through. It's what you're saying is resonating on a, on a slightly different level as well. Um, I am, I'm sports mad. And I remember growing up always wanting my dad to come out to the garden and help me catch, help me learn to be a I was going to say slip fielder, but you guys don't watch cricket, so that will make no sense. Um, But, um, like, come and play hockey with me, come and play soccer with me, come and play this, come and play that. And I remember him, like, he he clearly did. I remember lots of, in fact, all my, most of my happiest memories are when we go down to, we went to play cricket and he'd come down to the nets and, uh, and, yeah, a lot of my, my happiest memories are playing sports with my dad. But I also remember the times when he said, no, I can't come and play that with you now. I'm going through exactly that now with my son, that he just always wants to go and play tennis or swing ball or soccer or hockey, field hockey. And it's, I kind of love it. This is the child in me, wants to go and play with him. And then at the same time, it's like, oh, but I've been playing swing ball with you now for two hours and I really want to just go and have some time on my own. And I start understanding what my, like you say, it changes the memory of when that happened when I was a kid. Um, and you start seeing it from both sides that actually my dad went a long way out of his way to drive me to the local cricket field. to I don't know how often it was every weekend to go and play in the nets with me. And that's, that was a big ask of him, especially because I've got three sisters who are also demanding his time. And yeah, it changes the memory. It absolutely does. So here's a thought. When you were 10 and your father said no, was there anything that he could have said that would have made that no easier for you? Um, I don't know is the short answer. Um, Something like perhaps I can't right now, but I will tomorrow, Duncan and then live up to that. The reason I ask is in in this switching of identities, using empathy as that currency, 
you get to not only give Edward what he really needs, but you get to give yourself what you needed when you were 10 by giving it to Edward. Because yep. the, the truth of parenting is that we're not always going to be able to make to, to meet our kids' needs. And we're not always going to be able to discern whose needs are actually being met in that moment. But I have found over time, and it took me a long time to understand this, that if you take the time not only to be present, but to actually communicate from your heart, from that same place that I called you to lead from, you can deepen that relationship. And even if you can't get on the floor and play Legos, you can still give him what it is that he's looking for which is actually not Legos, but a feeling. And the feeling is, my father loves me and will be there for me. Yeah. Does this make sense? Yeah, it's just like he's at that brilliant age where he's an amazing negotiator because you say (laughs) 10 minutes, he says... Okay, no, 20. And then you say, okay, how about 15? And he says, no, 30. Um, <laughs> quite understood negotiation. And then you get into that. I don't know whether it's cool to be kind is perhaps not the right phrase, but um, I'm not very good at saying no to him. And part of it is probably kind of what we're talking about now. That actually, I just need to get better at saying not now, maybe tomorrow or in an hour or not yes, maybe. I can do not minutes maybe, now. not maybe in an hour or not maybe tomorrow. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Right. So it's, it's structure, it's container. It's, it's not unlike w- what we talked about at the camp in terms of being the leader it's it's giving him clarity it's giving something for him to hold on to so you know one of the things i used to do is take out a calendar with my kids and say okay daddy's going to be back on this day and i'd point to the thursday right and then i'd mark on the calendar you know some red mark or something like that so that they can look at the days and say okay this is what's going on or sometimes i would tell them what cities i was visiting so they so, so they had a sense that I wasn't just disappearing, but I was going to some place and I was going to come back. You know, my therapist once taught me the power of peekaboo. I don't know what you call it in the UK, but okay. Yeah. So one of the th- reasons why peekaboo is so powerful for a parent and child to play is that in peekaboo, and it was a British psychologist who really explored this, D.W. Winnicott, in peekaboo, What the parent is teaching the child is that the parent can go away, but the parent will come back. And learning that the parent or the CEO or the leader or the dad will come back is just as important as any other feeling that we can get. Because the anxiety that gets induced when the parent disappears is so profound that Really, the resiliency we want to instill in people is is the ability to self-soothe by knowing something of what the future will hold. So if you just hold that image of peekaboo, I go away, but I come back. I go away, but I come back. It's very powerful. I actually think that's one of the ways that I 
struggled as a CEO or as a leader is people would come with hard questions, wouldn't quite know how to answer them. And my natural tendency is to kind of stew on things or to mull things over until I'm kind of really, really certain. And quite often you don't get there. I remember reading once you've got to 70% confidence in a decision, you're probably wasting time getting much further. Um, but that made me really uncomfortable. So quite often I would get to most of the way to an answer, but never get confident enough that I could kind of tell people. So I can see, yeah, people would kind of ask me something, I play peekaboo, but I wouldn't, wouldn't come back. They'd have to come back to me. Um, and that's one of the things I was trying to push myself to get better at, which is one of the things that was so draining about being someone you're not for so long is like, there's just lots of small things like that. Um, in any given day, it's not that it's so tiring. It's just that doing that constantly with lots of different small things you want to get better at was just draining. Um, but yeah, kind of. I think the linkage you've just made is, is profound. It's brilliant. Um, Yes, there is a quality. I mean, I'm thinking of a client now who in his uh, performance review as a CEO, one of the feedback pieces of feedback he got was that people would email him and his replies would be inconsistent. Sometimes he was instantaneous and sometimes he would take weeks and weeks to get back, if at all. And they never really understand. So if you use the peekaboo analogy, what's happening is sometimes mommy and daddy come back and sometimes they don't. And that's really, really destabilizing. But if you simply said in those instances, I know you sent me an email two days ago. I know I t promised you a reply. I'm still mulling it over. I will get back to you. It's kind of like going back to the peekaboo analogy. It's kind of like opening the hands and showing that you're still there, but closing them up again. And even more, if you give the employee, if you give the other something to hold on to, this is what I'm working on. I'm struggling to get to 100%. I don't like speaking when I'm 70% sure. Now, yes, great. In an ideal world, you make a decision when you're 70, 80% sure. Yes. But not all of us are capable of that, and certainly not in all decisions. But if you give the other something to hold on to and communicate, then you are addressing their underlying feeling, which is as important, maybe even more important than actually giving them the answer to the question that they asked you. Yeah, what I'm, what I'm thinking now is it's, it's amazing how a lot of these problems seem so simple, like when you talk them through with someone like yourself, and then you start, I think this is one of the demons I'm going to have to face in the future is, did I give up too early? Um, should I have just worked a bit harder? At, like, there's a somewhat, not necessarily easy answer, but there's a very concrete answer to one of the traits I struggled with. Um, and like, in some senses, leadership, being CEO, in any sort of thing, it, none of it, it's not rocket science, it's not hard, it's just continually doing the right thing. And um, yeah, at some point I might have to face the, did I give up too early? Did I, um, could I have toughed it out? But right now, 
it's not something I'm worried about because I, like I said, I feel so energized in not having to do all of that stuff, being able to be myself, I think. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to amend something that you just said. I think it is hard. I don't think it's complicated. I don't think it's as complicated as our anxieties make it out to be, but I think it's incredibly hard. You know, I've lately been doing this talk called Being Fierce, which is about speaking truth and saying what needs to be said. And uh, it's really hard. Doesn't mean it's complicated. It's, it's just hard. The reasons it's hard are complicated, but the action itself is straightforward. And with regard to the, to the doubts that creep in, Unfortunately, and this is also hard, no one can really say, we can't A-B test your life, right? We can't say, what is Duncan looking like if he decided not to stay, to, not to give up the role? And what does Duncan look like if he did? So the best that we have is to go on what our experiences are right now. And, you know, when I was learning to be a coach, one of the things I struggled with was, and I would talk to my supervisors with about, would be, well, I don't know if this is working or that's working. And one supervisor used to say to me all the time, well, how did the client feel? I said, well, they felt better and they got clearer. And I said, well, then it worked. <laughs> you know, and in this case, you're both the coach and the client. And... You know, I remember that you have somatic expression, that sometimes you have stomach problems. How's your stomach been? With one exception, much better. Um, yeah, say that again. I had a feeling it was going to be that way. <laughs> yeah. um, and there's a whole bunch of stuff in that as well that... I think one of the reasons it's better is, well, last night was the first night I went, um, hockey training has come back, field hockey again, not ice hockey, um, which isn't a girl sport, by the way, just for all the Americans listening. <laughs> uh, very, very good man sport. Anyway, let's move on. Um, I, I bought myself a bike and have done a couple of um, trips out on the bike. I don't know who invented cycling up hills, but they need to be shot. Um, <laughs> I for a few runs. Like, it's all tied in. I'm doing things that would naturally make my body more resilient to that anyway. Um, but I think that is because I feel more energized. I can get home in the evening and, and I'm energized or I've got motivation. Um, like The house has never looked as good as it um as it does right now, because I've fixed a whole bunch of stuff that's just been bugging me for ages. And it's just like, well, now I'm going to fix it. Um, I've got the mode. I actually had the time to do it as well. I took some time off. Um, but I think it was more, it was more important than just the time. It was the motivation to actually make things better. And yeah, it's all related. And actually the one time when my stomach, um, didn't play so well, was when I went out for drinks with Will, the new CEO, my best friend. And, probably drank more than I should have. So it's entirely my own fault and probably nothing to do with how I was feeling, just the amount of alcohol that was consumed. Um, yes, yes, I, 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 I would, I would uh, second that. You know, the, the, the being fierce talk that I do, I talk about how I learned to ask myself the question, what am I not saying that needs to be said in response 
And I was taught that by my therapist in response to my ongoing migraines. Now, my migraines haven't disappeared. There's no question about that. But they went from once a week to once every three or four months, which I will take any day of the week. You know, um, it's a profoundly different experience. You know, life is a profoundly different experience. Um, The other thought I had was that it, it, it still amazes me the degree to which, so I do it myself, the degree to which we separate the inner and the outer. And, and you know, when you first describe, well, you know, I'm exercising more, so that's probably having an, an effect on the internals. Yes, it probably is. And yet, as you, as you noted, you're more energized. By shifting the in, inner landscape, you shifted your ability to deal with the external landscape all of a sudden you have, quote, more energy, which means you then exercise more, which then reinforces what's going on internally. This is why, you know, the work we talk about, whether it's rebooting your leadership or rebooting your life, which is our tagline, is really about looking at both the inner and the outer simultaneously. You know, I, I like to say that if, if transformation happened only by cognitive awareness, no one would smoke, no one would overdrink or overeat or gamble away their life savings. Because we all know that that's not good behavior. The problem isn't changing the externalities. The problem is shifting the internal landscape. The problem is going back and diving into the wreck. Mm-hmm. And saying, okay, what actually is going on for me? That radical self-inquiry part. And, you know, you've done that. You, you know, I, I am so admiring of your bravery. You know, you opened up both at the camp, but afterwards. I mean, you did the work. And... You know, Duncan, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you'll ever be a CEO again. Uh, I thought I would never be a CEO again, and here I am being CEO. And, you know, I've got three partners, and they look to me for things. And I was complaining last night. It's like, you know, I'm a lone wolf. What do you mean you actually have to look at my calendar and make decisions about things? That's not fair. And yet here I am doing more than I was ever able to do before. Things like this podcast, things that I wanted to do, but really didn't allow myself to do because I didn't have the time. And now I have time. So I don't know if you'll ever be a CEO again. You might. I have a feeling though, that you're not gonna go back to being the way you were as a father or a husband for that matter. So, so what's next for you in this, in this journey as you transition? Are you, um, how's the business doing? The business is doing well. Um, I think whether it's me stepping down, I think a change of leadership has done it, a, a, the, perhaps not the world of good. I think this is another one of those demons where the more credit I give to the change in the business, the more credit I give to Will, 
the more it makes me feel like my role was kind of that I was the fault. And there's there's a balancing act there. But no, business is going well. Um, still things we need to work through. I think I, I started off by saying that the industry is going through a bit of a transition. We have to um, make that transition as well. Um, I think that's going well, but it's hard. There's people who um, who joined us when we were a very different organization to the one we are now. Um, but no, every, I think we are set up for set up for all the exciting things we want to do. Personally, my journey, I think I'm going to continue to work with Will. We probably get to work better together in a slightly different role. Um, we've I mean, we've had a ton of conversations, and I think this puts us at the the way that keeps our friendship as strong as it can, whilst keeping the business as strong as it needs to be. Personally, I'm gonna. I'm working with our R&D team, so I like sitting in the corner writing code, which I need to be a bit careful of. Uh, I don't want to permanently just be the bloke in the corner that no one really knows what he's doing. But right now, I'm absolutely loving it. Um, it's one of the reasons I feel so energized. I'm doing something new every day. You're saying you can't split test, um, you can't A/B test life. You can A/B test when you're writing code, and I, I love that kind of that very very quick validation. What I did this morning either works or it doesn't work. And if it doesn't work, there's probably a line in a log report somewhere that tells me which line is broken and it's very easy to go and fix it. Whereas if something's not working as a CEO, you have to, you just don't get anywhere near the same level of information as to what went wrong or how to fix it. So I'm loving that kind of very quick feedback loop. Um, I'm loving getting back to actually why I started Distilled. Um, when Will and I started, I uh, sat at my desk all day writing code. I was writing websites. Um, I did computer science at university. Um, I've been a coder for as long as I can remember. And for the past five years, I haven't really written a line of code. And in the last two weeks, I've written like loads and I'm absolutely loving it. So um, yeah, I think my journey is just gonna do that for a bit. Um, and hopefully do that for as as long as I feel I can add value whilst doing that. Yeah. Well, it, it, what a wonderful story. Will you stay in touch with me? Absolutely. You know, uh, it's such a pleasure and delight to connect with you on this and to get caught up and, and, and see where you are. And uh, I may be coming to the UK. Uh, it looks like I'll be in, at least in Dublin in November. And we may put some events together either in London or, or Dublin. So I'll definitely reach out to you and, and yes. say hello and see if we can grab a cup of tea or something. Yeah. And if there's anything I can do, let me know. I will. I will. It's really a pleasure. So that's it for our conversation today. I know a lot was covered in this episode from links to books to quotes to images so we went ahead and compiled all that and put it on our site at reboot.io slash podcast. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, you can find out about that on our site as well. I'm really grateful that you took the time to listen. If you enjoyed the show and you want to get all the latest episodes as we release them, head over to iTunes and subscribe. And while you're there, it would be great if you could leave us a review, letting us know how the show affected you. So thank you again for listening, and I really look forward to future conversations together.